Lord, tonight as we gather for worship, I'm mindful of others who are gathering and have been gathering and are beginning to gather all over the globe. And so by name, I want to pray tonight for uh, Marina, Amira, Camilla, Kareel, uh, Saeed, uh, Malika, Joseph, Colsom, Augustine and his family, Javier and his family, Francisco and his family, Felix and his family, Carlos and his family, Esteban and his friend, and Hermione and his family. Uh, Lord, to know uh, names of others who uh, may not yet be walking uh, with you in Christ or who are just very early on in their journey of faith, um, it is sweet to be able to know that there are uh, men and women faithfully engaging them in the word and uh, to know that you are doing a work that's far greater than what we can usually just see. I'm thankful that what's going on in the kingdom and the forward movement of the kingdom is not limited by our sight and our comprehension and our understanding. Uh, so Lord, we pray for them. We pray that a good seed would find good soil and that the result would be faithfulness and, and glory given to uh, the one true God. I pray against distractions in those scenarios, and I pray that you would be uh, seen clearly and, and held uh, in the high regard that is proper. Uh, Lord, we pray uh, for our time tonight, and as we enter into a time of worship, I pray that our hearts would not be far from you as our lips uh, confess truths about you in song. We love you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, turn to Exodus 20. We'll be in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 7. Uh, tonight, we're going to be specifically looking at commandments 1 through 3. And we'll start with uh, a little bit of time in Exodus 19, just recapping where we were last week. Uh, let's pray, and, and we'll jump right into it. Lord, in our time in Exodus tonight, I don't want it to be in the flesh. I don't want it to be in vain. I don't want to just increase in head knowledge and there be no... Uh, application. Uh, I don't want to be hearers of the word only and, and not doers of the word. I don't want to be found as hypocrites when we take all this in. And so my prayer is that you would allow us to hear clearly and understand uh, specifically what you would have for us from Exodus 19 and 20, especially in regards to the law and to grace and to your will for our lives. Uh, but I don't want it to just be knowledge. My, my prayer is that you would help us to see how we truly walk in this as image bearers who are showing others uh, who our God is and what our God is like. Uh, we love you, Lord. Uh, we know that outside of Christ, that is not possible. Uh, this is not just about works. Uh, it is about the righteousness of another being counted as ours. And so we are completely dependent upon Christ as we let that request be made known. Uh, we humble ourselves before you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last week, we found, uh, the title last week was Welcome to Sinai, and we found that uh, the, uh, the uh, Israelites had been led out of what country? Egypt. And how long were they in Egypt previous to that? Like 400 and some years, so it was a long time, and they came through, and what happened right when they left Egypt? They plundered the Egyptians verbally, which is awesome. Love that. What else happened? What happened at the Red Sea? What, what was that? 
They crossed on dry ground, not soggy ground, totally dry ground. Uh, what were some other things that God showed them in their journey uh, to Sinai? What, and what, what other ways did God bless them? Yes, manna. That's a big one. How else? Water. Quail. Uh, they defeated uh, Amalek. Uh, he, um, there was good advice given through Jethro and the way to judge the people, and now they arrive at Mount Sinai. And so uh, we'll start with the question, why could arriving at Mount Sinai be sort of a letdown? Why would it feel possibly like a letdown to arrive at Mount Sinai? Yeah, it's not the promised land. It's Mount Sinai. It's a unsettled desert mountainous terrain. It's, it's not the promised land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, how long will Israel spend at Mount Sinai from this point? A year, roughly, give or take. And that's about how long we'll be in Exodus. So it'll be cool because we'll just be dwelling for a year together at the base of Mount Sinai. Uh, behind the grumbling of Israel, because Israel was sort of marked by grumbling. They would whine and God would bless them, and they would whine and God would bless them. It was a pretty remarkable cycle. Uh, behind the grumbling lies the implied question, what are we doing here? Uh, that would be the implied question behind grumbling. And so my question to you is, how does that translate today, that question on what are we doing here when we find ourselves grumbling? When does that normally come up? When things are not going well? Yeah, when they're not going our way. What would some examples of that be specifically? Physical illness? Financial difficulty? Yeah, we, we reach these points in our lives where things are difficult. It can happen with work. It can happen with family. And you just say, what am I doing here? And you find yourself grumbling because it's like, what is the point in this? Because this doesn't seem all that great. And God gives us hope in that, obviously. And we're going to see that play out more in the text today. Um, what does it mean to be in awe of God? Say that again. Yes, when you have God in right view, everything pales in comparison. What is it, uh, what happens when we fall out of awe? Yeah, focused on ourselves. Yeah, everything else doesn't have the right, you don't have the right perspective on other things. If I'm out of awe of God and things at work are hard and things in my family are hard, all of a sudden they seem much bigger than they really are because I've, I've lost my awe and I'm not experiencing that wonder of, of who God is and how he's revealed himself. Um, turn to Exodus 19. You're already in Exodus 20. Just look over at Exodus 19. And I want to read verses 5 through 6. And I want to ask you a question because I want us to make the connection. Like, we don't just come on Sundays and try to walk in what happens. Like, we don't live week to week. The hope here is that as you come on Sundays and as you come on Wednesdays and as you go to your small groups and as you engage the word with your families that your, your faith is growing that you're being strengthened in the truth and that it's not just I hear this truth on Sunday and I walk in it for a week until I hear a new truth on Sunday and then I walk in that for a week and then we're going to hear a new truth and then there's some Wednesday mixed in there and we try to connect it. Really think that you are being sanctified. You are being made more Christ-like 
And so as you hear teaching, as you hear preaching, as you engage in conversation of the Bible, we're growing in our understanding of who God is. And, and it's not just weekly. It is your life as, as God is helping you to see who he is and what his will is for your life so that you can be an image bearer as you were created. And so I want to make sure we see these connections. Look at Exodus 19, verse 5 through 6. Now therefore, this is God speaking, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Uh, how does the sermon from Sunday on Hebrews 2 inform the if in Exodus 19.5? How does the sermon from Hebrews 2 inform the if of Exodus 19.5? That is a fantastic answer. I'm actually asking the question because I haven't figured it out either. Anyone want to take a shot at it? At least, not, it doesn't have to be like, oh, I have the full answer for you right now. Ben doesn't even need to preach next week. But maybe there's some light that is shed on. Let me rephrase it. How did the sermon from Hebrews 2 shed some light on the if in Exodus 19.5? Yes, it's not just works. One of the things God is going to reveal through the uh, through the commandments is he very much cares about the condition of your heart. So it's not okay for you to just do something or say something when your heart's far from it. Um, how else does the Hebrews 2 sermon from this last week inform the if, shed light on, at least in a small way, Exodus 19.5? Yeah. Yeah, th there is absolutely grace in the Old Covenant as well as the New Covenant. It's not law way back here, grace way over here, and they're separated, and Jesus somehow connects them in some obscure manner. Um, hopefully we'll see that more clearly as we go through uh, the commandments. I think that God wants this group of, of Reformed believers, Reforming believers, to not miss what it means to live in an unacceptable life. Um, sometimes you can say, God does what he wants, he's going to act how he wants to act, as long as I'm his, I'm good, Period. And if I do some good things, then that's good too. And that's a wrong way of thinking. Um, God wants us to know what it means to live an acceptable life. God wants us to embrace holiness and godliness. He wants us to carefully measure our actions and our words, making sure that our works and our words express the greatness of who he is. God wants us to see the possibility of drifting, or else he wouldn't have said so in Hebrews 2. He wouldn't use the word if in Exodus 19. He wants us to see the possibility of unacceptable living. He's not trying to scare you like a monster saying, you better do it right. That's not what this is. But he wants us to see there's a possibility of drifting. There's a possibility of unacceptable living. And he is perfectly holy. And that must be taken into account when we're considering our words, when we're considering our actions. So that we don't lose sight of the fact that his patience is meant to lead us toward repentance. He's not patient with us just because he doesn't care how we act. He's patient with us because that's meant to lead us to repentance. Repentance is turning from the sin and turning toward God. So God has redeemed this people that they and we uh, would walk in obedience. And there's really not room for excuses there. No one is exempt from holiness. The reality of grace does not trump the call to holiness. Does that make sense? The reality of grace does not trump the call to holiness. 
We can't say, God's called us to be holy, but he gave us grace, so if we're not, it's, it's, it's okay. It'll be all right. It'll, it'll come out in the wash. That's not a, a proper understanding of grace. Anytime you treat grace as something that lowers the bar, anytime you treat grace as something that is lowering the standard, um, anytime you, you treat grace as something that negates the importance of obedience or negates the importance of holiness, um, at that point we would be showing a grave misunderstanding of God's grace and God's holiness and what he intends in that. So now we're going to get to the specifics. We're going to get to the specifics now. Consider, as we read through the commandments, what is God communicating? And before I read them, I want to consider some of our perceptions before we dive into this. So what is God achieving in this communication? Uh, like, for most of us, maybe for some of us, we've never read the commandments, and this is totally new. But for, some of you, for those of you that this is not totally new, and you have indeed heard the commandments before, what, what are your thoughts on what, what is being achieved by God in this communication? A standard. What else? Yep. The expectation of how we live. How to honor him. Yeah, it reveals his character. How does, how does it reveal his character? If he says, you are image bearers, and then he says, I want you to do this, he's saying, in doing this, you reveal my image. So it shows us his character. He, he doesn't want us to live in a way that doesn't show his character. He doesn't tell us to um, live in such a manner as to where people see you for who you are because you're special. He says you're an image bearer, so live in a way that shows people who I am. So that's, yeah, it shows his character for sure. What else? Achieved in this communication of commandments. Yeah, yeah, we need something else to be able to be redeemed to him. Wow, that's really, that's very true, but totally loaded. I mean, there, there's a lot of aspects of truth in that statement. Let's break that down. We need something else. And what did you even say? And what did, say it again. Okay, what does that mean? <laughs> like I said, those are true, but really big. Fantastic explanation. And in comes Jesus. That's, that, that's where we're getting to the point about Jesus. This is all about Jesus. Jesus is not an afterthought. We're not going to go through the commandments and say, okay, now what? I mean, read the realities and the truths you know about Jesus into all of this. Um, 
I think some of the things we've touched on and a few other points, what's being achieved in this communication is our tendencies, his standards, what is important to him, the life we are supposed to live before him, the life we're supposed to live with each other is being communicated, uh, how we are to remain faithful is being communicated, uh, how we are to be um, from a moral standpoint, and also the designs of community life are, are all in this. So uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 21 aloud, and um, there's going to be a good amount of reading tonight. So dig in, import your senses. When I'm reading, consider what is going on here. Uh, and the reason for that is that I can't show you pictures of God. Uh, he reveals himself by the word. And so it's necessary as we engage the commandments, there's going to be a lot of um, reading tonight. So listen closely, read along. Gen- uh, Genesis, that was a couple years ago, last year. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. In verse 1, we see, And God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. First, see in verse 1 that, God actually spoke in a manner where everyone could hear it. And he spoke in a manner where we hear it today. So as they were at the base of Mount Sinai, when these words come forth, everyone heard it. And there's a sense in the language here that, I don't even know how to explain it, that that word goes forth to all of the earth crossing all generations where everyone hears his voice. So God is speaking something very important here. And they actually hear the voice of the Lord when he speaks. In verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. What does God reveal about the commandments in this statement that he starts out with? 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What does he reveal about the commandments in the statement? This is all about God. He's making it clear up front. He's saying who he is and that this is all about him. Uh, he recounts his own deeds. In, in Psalm 9, it tells us that to be wholehearted in worship, we have to recount the deeds of the Lord. It says, I will be wholehearted in worship. I will recount the wonderful deeds of the Lord. I'm going to tell other people all that God has done, and that's one manner in which I am wholehearted in my worship. God is more wholehearted in worship than we are, so it is perfectly fitting that he recounts his own deeds. He's about to proclaim something that is of huge importance to all of his children, and he recounts his own deeds to make sure they know who's addressing them, to make it clear that there's no one like him. One commentator says, and listen closely to this, the law of God reflects the character of God. We established that earlier. We, we talked about it before we even read this. The law of God reflects the character of God. It is the likeness of God expressed in precepts. That means that the likeness of God is expressed in how he wants for his children to live. So live in such a manner so that the likeness of God can be seen by all who see you and by all who are watching and by all who are listening. It's expressed in obedience to the law of the Lord. And the obedience to the law triggers in us the image of God, which is our real nature. You were created, according to Genesis, in the image of God. In other words, we live the truly human life when we obey God's law. You're being who you were truly designed to be when you are obeying who God says you should be, when you are obeying what he tells you to do and how he tells you to live. This is important because it points to what God has done before it points to what they are to do. See the order here. God is saying, consider who I am, consider what I have done. Now, in proper perspective and in right order, we're going to consider what you're supposed to do. <coughs> this is a picture of grace preceding the law. If you're writing notes of any sort, that might be something worth writing down. This is a picture of grace preceding the law. And what does that mean? The grace that saves preceded the law that demands. There are demands in the law. You are to do this. But these things are preceded by grace. You have been redeemed. You have been delivered. You have been freed. You are no longer slaves. The grace that saves preceded the law that demands. The people were given the law not in order that they might become redeemed. That's not why they were given the law here. They're free people standing at the base of Mount Sinai. Rather, it was because they had already been redeemed that they were given the law. The law of God is the way of life that he sets before those whom he has saved. And they engage in that way of life as a response of love and gratitude to God, their Redeemer. I am purposefully being very careful about every word I choose here because this is hard. I don't want to get this out of order. I don't want you to say, so I've got to do this to be this in his eyes. No, no, no. He reckons you a certain way, and then he tells you how to live. So, we respond in love and gratitude to God, our Redeemer. Grace and the law belong together because grace leads to the law. It's a misconception to say, ooh, there's that law. Man, that's terrifying. That's, that's a problem. The law is not our problem. Sin is our problem. 
what God desires of our lives is not our problem. Our problem is sin. What God, when God says, this is what obedience is, this is the way you're supposed to live, you don't look at that and say, oh, that's, that's my problem. Your problem is the sin that keeps you from that because sin separates you from God. So grace and the law belong together because grace leads to law. It doesn't lead you away from the law. It doesn't negate the law. It doesn't even necessarily trump the law. It, it leads to the law, and we're going to see this in proper perspective. Saving love leads to and excites grateful love expressed in obedience. For those who are saved, they're grateful in their obedience. The law of the Lord was addressed to those brought out of bondage. And its aim was not to bring them into a new bondage. So the law is not to say, okay, y'all are going to be mine. We're going to tighten these reins. And it's going to be this just restraining kind of bondage thing, like no different than Egypt. The point is it's totally different than Egypt. God is not like Pharaoh. God is much greater than Pharaoh. So this isn't them at Mount Sinai being like, man, we had all these rules in Egypt, and now we got these new rules. No, no, no. What's happening here is the law of the Lord was addressed to those brought out of bondage. It was not designed to bring them into a new bondage, but rather to establish their new freedom. This is designed to establish their new freedom. So as I read through the commandments, think and read in these terms of God establishing their new freedom. He's not bringing them into a new form of bondage, slightly different than Egypt. They're free people, and he's saying, I want to establish what this is like. I want to establish for you and make clear to you what your life looks like for those who are in me. And that's what this is. So read and think in terms of those who uh, are being established in their new freedom that they don't fully understand yet and that we don't fully understand yet. Yes. Not establishing freedom. That's our job. Yes. You're saying establish as in, in this it. is how you are to live to walk. Yes. Not how you are. Yeah. It doesn't establish the freedom. Yeah. It doesn't establish freedom. Yeah. Yes. It would be like saying. Uh, They're free, so we're not. That's not. Yes. Uh, how to live in their freedom. Mm-hmm. That's correct. It, an example that I've heard before is. Um, during the racial tensions, uh, before laws were broken, um, there would be, you know, water fountains, one for a white water fountain and a black water fountain. And after those laws were done, or after the injustice and the laws were done away with that, that had those differences, if, if a black person walked up to a white water fountain and said, oh, I can't drink from that, they're just doing that voluntarily. They, don't, they, don't, they haven't lived in their freedom. They're not living in the freedom that's been established for them. And so that's what this is a picture of. It's you're free, but you don't really know what it is to live in this freedom. And so this, this is going to be established in how you live. It's not establishing the freedom particularly. That's been accomplished. It's how you live in it. More like a definition of the freedom. It certainly defines their freedom. So yeah, I, I, I'd say that. I think. I might have to listen to this again. It's hard. I think I'd say that. That sounds right. So look at verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Right out of the gates, God repeats a truth and what our faithful response is to the truth. So my question is, what is the truth that God has established and what is our response to that truth? There's a truth and there's a response in that statement. What is the truth? Yes, but there's a truth before that. 
That's the response. One God. There's no one else. There's no other God. There are some who are referred to as gods, but they're not even real. I was reading something today that talked about how Baalism is real, but Baal's not. So there's people who live this horrible, ungodly, fleshly um, life of debauchery and filth. Baalism. But there's no Baal. And so he's saying, I'm the one true God. That's the truth. And the response is what? Have no other gods before me. So he takes this truth. It reveals something about him, his character, the reality of who he is. And then he says, now this is the response. This is how you walk in obedience. Don't put other gods before me. So what do y'all think that means? Don't put other gods before me. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, anything you love more than God. Turn to Mark 10. Turn over to Mark 10, verse 17. I'm going to read uh, verses 17 through 22. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, this is a man who is coming up to Jesus and addressing him, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It was not so subtle, Jesus, he's not being subtle there, he's saying, I'm God. Uh, And then he says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus said, looking at him, and Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. My question is, how did this young man break the first commandment? Yeah, his possessions were his God. What does that mean? He loved his money, More than he loved God is what plays out in that. That's why he walked away sorrowful. He didn't hear the commandments that Jesus gave and receive it with joy and go walk in obedience. He walked away in sorrow because he loved his money more than he loved God. So he broke the first commandment. Was his original question a good one? What was his original question that he asked the young man? What can I do to inherit eternal life? Is that a good question? Uh, yeah, it's a little, it gets a little tricky, doesn't it? I'm thinking, yeah, what can I do to inherit eternal life? He had a misunderstanding that was reflected in his question. What can I do to inherit eternal life? What would be a better way to ask it? Have 
How do I receive? Yeah, how might I receive? Is very different than what must I do. This is helpful when you're sharing the gospel with someone. Like hopefully we're going to walk in this this week. And so when you're sharing the gospel with someone, when you're engaging lost people, which we should know lost people, it's not the design of the church to make it where we don't know any lost people. Uh, When you are sharing the gospel with someone and they're asking questions, sometimes it's good to look at the question before you answer it and maybe help them to see a better way to ask that question. Can say, what can I do? You don't say, will you do this? Because that's, that's, that's backwards. It's what has Christ done? What is the reality that's outside of you that accomplishes for you what you could never accomplish for yourself? And then how do we walk in that truth and in that reality and accept such a gift that is a free gift that cannot be earned? Like when you're sharing the gospel with someone, listen to the questions they ask and, and maybe just tweaking the question will help them to understand the actual answer that needs to be given uh, when you share uh, the word with them. So, yeah. 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 Yeah, because if you allow the wrong question to sit there and you answer it in a slightly untrue way, then that's, that could really perpetuate something horrible. I mean, when, when I moved here in 2003, Ben and I knocked on every single door this side of 30. And I only met one person who doesn't like God. One. Everyone else is totally square with God. They've done what they need to do. And over 95% of the people we talked to were not actively involved in a church home. That should break our hearts. That should make us want to carefully proclaim a very true message and and help people to see um, better questions to ask and an approach that's more true uh, to the word. So what are some gods that we are tempted to love more than the one true God? What are some lowercase g gods that we are tempted to love more than the one true God? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, this becomes very sobering very quickly. I mean, this is, we, we probably shouldn't be flippant about this because the man was asked to give over his wealth and that was the straw that broke the camel's back. That, w- that was, the, you've gone too far. And so he walked away sorrowful. So what would it be in your life? Oh, your husband, yes. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so there are, um, there's many things that, that can be little g-gods. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, he was eager up front, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the, the way Jesus addresses him here is the same way God addresses the Israelites in Exodus is that he's, he, he cares about the motive in your heart. He cares about where your heart is. He's not just asking you to go through particular motions so that he looks good. It's about your heart so that you rightly represent who he is. It's interesting, the thing about kids. Um, it is, at Crosspoint, children are very important. I mean, the, a view towards generations. I'm concerned about, I think each generation is getting busier. And so I wonder what that does to a people who are called to be generational in their thinking and in their faith and in their approach. Will I be too busy for my grandkids? Is that okay if I'm a Christian? And so um, there's a phenomena or a issue right now of people who have been married for 30 years who the last three decades have revolved around the lives of their kids. And then the kids move out and they look at each other and they say, I don't even know who you are. We don't have a soccer practice to go to. We don't have choir to go to. We don't have any events to go to. And you're looking at someone you've been married to for three decades, and they're a stranger because those three decades revolved around the kids. And it's like the kids can become little G-gods. The problem in the kids, though, the problem is where is our heart in relation to our, our view of God? Um, Thank you for your transparency. That was testimonies when shared like that um, communicate truth in a really beautiful way. So thank you for your transparency in that. Um, turn to Isaiah 40. I want us to see um, Isaiah 40 verse 9. I heard someone teaching and they just said, this verse is here for our awe. It's just all about awe. And I want to read through this, and I want you all to consider how these realities about God help to temper our hardest circumstances, 
help to temper our biggest misconceptions. Um, I'm going to read through, I mean, it's like 20-something verses, and, and I want to read through this, and I want you to consider, I mean, Marie just shared about two instances of, of a spouse walking away from faith and losing a child. There are realities about God that can inform even such horribly hard circumstances as that and every other circumstance in your life. And so I want to read through this, and I want you all to consider, because when God gives a commandment, he says, I am the one true God. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. And he wants us to see him for who he is. And so let's read Isaiah 40. verse. I'm going to start in verse 9. And I want you all to consider why God goes to such great lengths to communicate his greatness. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. And it will not move because it cannot move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He's referring to the stars here. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. Every time you look at the stars, God wants you to know he brings them out, he keeps them there, and he actually has names for each one of them. He wants you to know that so that you remember his greatness. You keep your awe. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. 
Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I challenge y'all to read that every day for the next week. Why does God go to such great lengths to communicate his greatness? Yeah, none of it makes sense otherwise. None of it. Nothing in your life will make right, proper sense if we don't see God rightly. We'll become bitter, angry, frustrated, overwhelmed, imbalanced. I was reading today about a guy who was explaining how the, the commandments as we hear them from God in love gives us balance in our lives. And I got to thinking about how imbalanced our lives can sometimes be. Having a family and having a job was never designed to kill you. Having a family and having a job was never designed to kill you. That is not God's hatred towards you that he would design it in such a manner. It's in those things that were to flourish, but I think the big point tonight is that if we don't see God for who he is, there will be imbalance. There will be things that overwhelm us. We are very much all too often overwhelmed by things that are not overwhelming. I, I mean, I'm guilty of it like today. Like the hour before I'm teaching, I'm guilty of being overwhelmed by things that aren't overwhelming because I lose sight of who my God is. If we have a proper view of who God is, there will be balance in our lives and we'll be able to move in a manner that really reflects who he is and we'll be more concerned about that than ourselves. Um, and I think we won't be overwhelmed by things he never designed to be overwhelming. We have to see God uh, with clarity. Isaiah 40 helps with that. And God enters into this time of sharing the commandments with us with that truth. There's no one like him, so don't put anyone before him. He wants us to know that first and foremost as we consider how we're supposed to live. Romans 12 says, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, which is pleasing to him. And that should be our goal every day. And we will know that only in as much as we see him with clarity and see him for who he is. Um, we will consider commandments two and three next week, I guess. Uh, we got through one. That's something. Um, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, you are great. You are greatly to be praised and your greatness is unsearchable. You have plans that go beyond our understanding. Your word tells us that from before time began, you made your plans in infinite wisdom. And then you created time. And so as we see these plans playing out, and as we see you proclaiming to your people, this is how I want you to live. Um, I, it's very important that we understand what great infinite wisdom went into this these commandments 
I pray we wouldn't just see it as a set of rules. I, say, I pray that we would see our freedom in it. Freedom to not waste our time longing for and running after and devoting ourselves and our resources on little lower G gods that aren't even real. Your word paints a picture of someone taking one piece of wood and using half of it for firewood and the other half made, making an idol. Lord, we are so prone to idolatry. First John, it just the, the close is with an abrupt, children, keep yourself from idols. In so many ways, we are children, and so we, in so many ways, we are prone to idolatry. And my prayer is that by the word, through prayer, in community, that we would keep ourselves from idols, that we would never put anyone before you. You are the one true God, and you are worthy of praise. And I pray that we would walk, I pray we would walk in that. I pray that as we go about our uh, days, that when we go to work, we wouldn't be overwhelmed by work, but we would see it as an opportunity to be image bearers. I pray that in our parenting, we would not be overwhelmed by our parenting, but that we would see it as an opportunity to be image bearers, knowing that we are moving in the strength of another, the one who gently leads the flock, who takes up the the young ones in his arms with such gentle and tender care, yet has the might to bring out all the stars and keep them in their place and name all of them and pile the mountains and scoop the valleys, and who can measure the waters of all the oceans in the hollow of his hand. Lord, instill awe in us. You are great and greatly to be praised. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.